I, I apologize, but if anybody falls asleep, you just get an F for the day. <laughs> Someone nearby poke you, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, I have somebody poke you to keep you awake, and we'll get through this together. So anyway, it, it is good to see each one of you back again, and I hope that you're going to be in for a, tr uh, a treat as we discuss a real difficult topic, and that's chemistry. <laughs> But it's, it's good because you all know the sign. If he talks over your head, remember what to do? All right, and he'll restate it. Yes, it's on. So our topic is watching my cards. But before we do, let's look at a verse. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction. That's Psalms 103, verses 2 through 4. So we're going to be talking about carbohydrates, and we want you to be able to identify the basic units of what a carbohydrate is. And recognize sugars by their names, State the benefits of resistant starch. And if you got one of the handouts, we put the definition of resistant starch on that green sheet because that's so important and it's new information that we didn't know probably a couple years ago. I don't even know that we knew it then. We knew it. We've really learned it more in the last year or so. And then we're going to name the antidote of fructose. So listen real closely. He will be asking. And remember that this is for educational purposes only. Make sure to talk to your physicians before you make changes. Um, you can freely increase the fiber in your diet before you talk to them. All right, Ginger. Ginger was actually a friend of ours, and she might have been a friend to some of you from way back in college days. Um, really sweet girl. We love Ginger a lot. And uh, she got married, moved away, went to Michigan. Through the years, she, she had some difficulties. She actually stopped weighing herself when the, the scales tipped at... 250 pounds. You can tell that she ended up more than that. She was very obese. She suffered from anxiety, diabetes, congestive heart failure, sleep apnea. She was falling. She could hardly get up. She couldn't get up off of the bed. She couldn't get up off of a chair without falling. And so a friend of hers got her a bed that had the post so that when she got up, she could hold on to the post and that helped her. But eventually she ended up divorced and she moved to Tennessee to be close to a friend of hers. We were up in the Bristol area doing a weekend program for them. Actually, we did a weekend program in the library and it was really awesome. And Ginger came over to her friend's house where we were staying. We did not know her history. But she, she asked a lot of questions about what we were doing. And so we just shared with her, gave her the, the, I guess, the program in a nutshell, you might say, just gave her tips of what she could do to improve her health. And she listened carefully, and she took it all in. 
And at this point, she was living in an assisted living facility. And so she had a little kitchenette, but most of the meals she would go down to the, the cafeteria, the dining area with everybody. She was able to walk. She was using, was she using a walker? A walker, at that, yes. a walker at that point. She had given up her driver's license and was just dependent on other folks at this point. But she got a recipe, and I wish I had the recipe with me because I would share it with you. She ate this a bean soup recipe every single day for one year. But it got her started. And I mean, I, I haven't actually made it, but just reading the recipe, it looks like it would be good. It had a lot of stuff in it, different kinds of beans and seasonings and she put the Rotel tomatoes in it so it'd have a little bite to it. Anyway, and so she ate that every day for a year. <clears throat> she talked with her physician, and, and he agreed. He helped her. After it was over, she had lost more than 140 pounds. Her anxiety was gone. Her diabetes was gone. Her congestive heart failure was gone. Her sleep apnea, as of about six weeks ago, is gone. And she's now steady on her feet. She got her driver's license back. She bought a car. And she has moved into her own apartment. Furthermore, she has come back to church. And one of the ladies became a friend of hers when she was living in assisted living. And this, this lady was blind. She was younger, which maybe in her 50s, late 40s or 50s. Probably late 40s. Anyway, had never studied the Bible. And she was real interested in Ginger. Ginger would study the Bible. And so she wanted to study the Bible. And they studied together. And when Ginger was rebaptized, Maddie was baptized. Ginger is now the Bible worker in her church up in Bristol. And she teaches the adult Sabbath school lesson some weeks. And the pastor says it's amazing. She's just so involved, and she just, it's just amazing, just amazing. Another thing with her is she is off. She was on seven psych drugs. And the physicians say that once you're on them, you're always on them. She's off of six of them already. And they're very hopeful. She's doing so well that uh, she may eventually be able to come off of her last psych drug. And she gave us permission, she said, you tell all my story. So that's why we're sharing that. Another thing, as a little girl, this is important for those of us that work with children. You know, some children can be wild. Someone was telling us as we were standing in line before they opened for lunch. They were sharing about a little child in their Sabbath school that was eight years old in their church. And at potluck, he would come around and he would just help himself to whatever was on your plate or on your plate. If he saw something he wanted, he was just eight years old. He had had no training. And so sometimes, you know, how do you deal with them? Well, you deal patiently. In Ginger's story, back when she was a little girl and she would go to Sabbath school and they would sing, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, her person in her life would say, Ginger, you're not good enough. Jesus doesn't love you. That's the other children that Jesus loves. 
And so she really struggled all through life that she was never good enough for Jesus. Folks, we are good enough for Jesus because of what he's done for us. It's not, it's not us. But even these little ones, he loves them. And he yearns for them to come to him. And so as we, we mentor these little kids, anyway, we've just got to love them like Jesus loves them. So Ginger just has a wonderful story, and she's doing so well, and we praise the Lord. So, yes, you get to take over. Whoops, 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 whoops. <laughs> what, I, I, whatever I did. Well, I think what happened, I need to fix in the bag, so you can... You, uh, yeah, it had, she, this journey slide. for her has been five years. And we have an intermittent picture that I really wish we could put in the program, and we need to. We could put it over top okay, of the good. great big one of her to show what it was after four years. And then the, the difference between four years and five years was huge. That's where she really came down this last bit and trimmed up. And, sorry, and, and I'm, sorry, I'm sorry that we don't have a real clear picture, but oftentimes what we find is when people are this obese, they just don't care to have their picture taken. And so she didn't. And, but she did have this. And it shows where, where she was to what she became. And it's just very transformative. Um, we're going to spend just a little bit of time. I want to tell you one more thing. For those of you that are just coming in, you know, sometimes when he's talking, I have to come over, I'll rub him on the back, you know, like, give me a chance to talk. <laughs> this time, if you see him rubbing me, you'll know what it is. But I just want to say one more thing, that someone came up to me this morning and asked, <laughs> they asked, have you ever been pre-diabetic? And I want you to know that yes, the answer is yes. And we're going to tell my story on Friday. But I've been there, and so I understand what you're going through. And hopefully we can share this information with you that will make a difference for you. Okay, it's yours. Thank you. <laughs> Isn't she lovely? I, I have just admired this uh, woman now for uh, 46, 47 years. And back here is Janet. Uh, she, doesn't, she, she probably didn't know what a pivotal role that she was playing in us getting together. But she was one of the nursing instructors up at Madison, and Karen was, uh, Karen was at Madison for the rotation. Southern since their nursing students up there uh, for one semester for a while. And she was up doing her rotation up there. And Janet was one of the instructors, but she had a home in College Dale. And so she was coming back, and Karen hitched a ride with her. And I happened to be, uh, um, well... That's, that's a different story for a different day. Anyway, we got together that weekend, and we've never been the same since. So she's partly to blame or partly responsible, whatever it may be. But, but Janet is very dear to me, and so I was thrilled to come, and, and she and Malcolm were here in, yes, our, absolutely. in our group. So we're going to change gears just a little bit, and I'm going to talk about carbohydrate chemistry. Now, I have a, uh, a degree in chemistry, and I absolutely love chemistry. And uh, when, when you study and understand it, 
uh, it makes a whole lot of difference. So I'm going to try to make it understandable. And again, if I say something you don't understand, just give me the sign and we'll try again. Okay? So let's talk about sugars. Well, first of all, there are different food things that we eat for energy. You can eat proteins, you can eat carbohydrates, or you can eat fats. That's it. That's all we have to eat. Proteins, carbohydrates, or fats. So when we talk about carbohydrates, we can break the carbohydrates down. There are sugars. There actually are more sugars than just one or two. There are, there are a bunch of them. We're going to talk specifically about six of them today. But then there are, uh, there are starches, there is fiber, and there's cellulose, the stuff that uh, trees are made out of, and the woody stuff. And that is um, actually something people eat. Um, you can't digest it, but people eat it. And then there are fats. We, we have fatty acids. There's triglycerides that fall into that category. And then you have proteins, amino acids, and things of that nature. So let's jump into the carbohydrate thing and start unraveling this. Now, to make it a little simpler, I've represented some of these sugars as just colored ovals. And so there's a sugar called glucose. When the sunlight comes down and hits the leaf of the plant, and uh, the, the plant stores the energy of the sun, the predominant way that it stores that is as glucose. And uh, it's very, very plentiful. So that's the red oval. And, but another way that it stores it is fructose. Uh, so they have, you have glucose, and now we have fructose. Uh, and it's, it's a different sugar. It's actually the same molecular configuration, but the molecule is shaped differently. And the sweetness is different. It's, it's much sweeter than glucose. Fructose is much sweeter. And then we have galactose. Again, the molecule is shaped just a little bit different, but uh, it's not as sweet as your, your other sugars. But uh, in nature, these things like to be like people. They reach out and they hold hands. And it's what we call a weak hydrostatic bond. And so you'll notice I've represented that as a little line between the ovals. So when you have two glucose molecules that hold hands, you get another sugar and it's called maltose. Very good. And when you have a glucose that holds hands with a fructose, you get sucrose. And when you ha have glucose that holds hands with galactose, you have, and you've heard of people that are lactose intolerant. They simply don't digest that sugar very well. Then, then we have starches. And starches are nothing but long chains of glucose that are holding hands. Okay? And then we have... Uh, um, there, there's resistant starch. I'm going to come back to that in just a little bit. Fiber are even longer chains yet. Uh, you can't digest fiber. But as the, the chains get longer and longer, they begin to branch more and more. And it just becomes so long that we don't have the enzymes to break them down. I mean, earthworms can, cows can, but people can't. So we don't digest those uh, particular elements. So these, uh, these sugars, the thing I want you to remember most about this slide is that the names of the sugars all end in O-S-E. 
So if you're reading a label and it says sucrose, what is it going to be? It's going to be a sugar. Food manufacturers know that you don't know this information. And so they take advantage of it and they'll write down fructose or sucrose or, or, or they'll, they'll give sugar different names because if they lumped it all together and just simply called it sugar, it would be the first ingredient and you wouldn't buy it because they know you're smart. So we got, we got to throw you for a curve. Now we've taken a lot of the mystery out of it. If it ends in OSE, it's a sugar. Okay? So let's shrink this down. We'll put it up in the corner up there. And I'm going to go down that list again. I want to talk about each one of these sugars just a little bit more. So let's start with glucose. Um, glucose is what we call an essential carbohydrate. It's essential fuel for energy. And the reason it's essential is you have organs in your bodies, like your adrenal glands, like your brain, they can't operate without glucose. And in fact, what your body will do, uh, God created us very wonderfully, it'll take proteins or it'll take fats and it breaks it down and makes glucose so you have glucose to keep your brain alive if you don't eat it in your food. But we need to eat it in our food. And fortunately for us, it's widely available in our food supply. We can get it in just about anything. It's in sugars, it's in starches, it's in uh, fiber, it's in cellulose, it's just all over the place. So that's an essential fuel. Now we have fructose that comes up next. Fructose is a non-essential carbohydrate. You could live the rest of your life and never eat a bit of fructose and you would thrive. You would do very, very well. So it is a simple sugar, but it cannot be used throughout the body. You remember yesterday we talked about how insulin has to open a door in order to get glucose into the cell. This is the glucose over here that we were talking about. We can get the glucose with the red oval, we can get that into the cell, but we can't get fructose into the cell. There are no cell receptors for it. So what has to happen, it goes to the liver where the liver changes it into a different form that it can metabolize. Okay? So the, the, but it's, it's also widely available in our food supply. So things like fruits and berries and uh, uh, certain root vegetables and uh, um, high fructose corn syrup and agave syrup, it's in all kinds of stuff. And uh, so we can make it chemically, and we do, and we can make it very cheaply, and so we use a lot of it. And is it good for us? Well, not necessarily. We'll talk more about that in just a little bit. Now, galactose, we're coming down the list up there in the corner, so we're down to the blue oval. The galactose is also a non-essential fuel. And again, there's no cell receptors for galactose. So it has to go to the liver and be changed into something else. Well, it, it, to change fructose requires huge amount of energy. But to change the galactose easy three-step process, but it's back out into the bloodstream uh, as, uh, as glucose. So, you know, it's very easily changed into something else. So there we have the simple sugars. Now let's move down the list a little bit more to maltose. Uh, maltose, we have these two um, molecules that are holding hands. So when, when the two molecules hold hands, 
you know, then, um, well, anyway. There are a lot of abundant sources of maltose. So you get it in things like beverages and beer and cereals and grains and pastas and potatoes, et cetera, et cetera. When, you, um, when we digest these, we put them in our mouth, and there's an enzyme in your mouth called amylase. That's a, it's in your saliva. And it's also made in your pancreas, which is dumped into the digestive system when the food gets to the stomach. But it goes to work right away, and what it does is it breaks the bond between those sugar molecules. So maltose gets changed into glucose. Maltose gets changed into glucose. When you eat sucrose, somebody tell me another name of sucrose. Yeah, white sugar, table sugar. Okay, that's, that's your white sugar. So when, when that goes into your mouth again, same thing happens. The, the amylase breaks that little bond, and when it goes into the stomach then, it goes in as glucose and fructose. So uh, it's available in many plants, roots, ripe fruits, especially the last three days that a fruit is ripening. It'll change a lot of the starches into fructose. And so we eat the fructose, and, uh, and we get it that form. Now going down to lactose, when lactose, same thing happens. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's in your milk and uh, the sugar in milk. But when it's digested, again, it breaks down. But the, you have glucose and you have galactose, but the galactose is so quickly changed in the liver. I mean, it's just a little pass through the liver and boom, it comes out as glucose. So really for all practical purposes. You have glucose, and then starches are made up of nothing but long chains of glucose. There we go. And so they, sorry, they, uh, they become glucose. So for all practical purposes, when we're looking at carbohydrate digestion, we're looking at two sugars that we want to deal with. So let's take a deeper dive. Don't you like the high dive? <laughs> some yes, some no. Okay. All right. Now, if I were to eat a pound of glucose, 80% of that pound of glucose is going to be sucked up by every cell of the body almost immediately. I mean, it goes in and then insulin just goes to work and opens up the cell doors and boom, there goes the sugar. But about 20% of it will make its way to the liver. Once it gets in the liver, you remember the liver's job is to store sugars for future need. And so it'll take the sugars and it stores them away in the form of glycogen. And the, the liver can store quite a bit of it, uh, about 2.7, it's either pounds or kilos, and I don't remember which. Anyone here know? Anyway, it's... It, it's, it, it's not going to make you sick. Um, it gets converted to glycogen, and the body can virtually store an infinite quantity, if you please, without making you sick. This is a, this is a good sugar. And uh, the problem is, once it's stored in the liver, can't get out of the liver without the release of certain hormones. So it gets sort of locked away for that emergency use. 
and one-third of one percent, just a very small portion, gets converted to VLDL. What's VLDL stand for? It stands for very low density lipoprotein. And that means the artery-clogging stuff like cholesterol, etc., would fall into that category. And uh, so if you live to be 95 years of age, uh, and you lead a sedentary lifestyle, this could potentially become a problem for you. But um, if you lead an active lifestyle, you'll never see a problem from eating glucose. Glucose is just good stuff, okay? If you ate a pound of fructose, none of the fructose can be used in its current form. 100% of it has to go to the liver where it is converted into something that your body can use. Now, if I were to write out all the chemical pathways, and we know them, I would probably fill up at least two walls of this room in my handwriting to write all those chemical pathways that this molecule has to go through in order to be broken down into stuff that our body can use. And uh, uh, one of the things that we do know Fructose causes fatty liver disease. It used to be back in the 1960s, roughly. A doctor could come in to a medical practice and practice his entire career and only see one or two or three cases of fatty liver disease. It just didn't happen. Today, that doctor can hardly get through the day without seeing two or three cases or more of fatty liver disease. It is so prevalent because of the lifestyle that we're living, and uh, it, uh, fructose causes fatty liver disease. It also causes non-alcoholic cirrhosis, and it causes liver cancer. And once it is stored away in the liver, it can't get out of the liver without the release of certain hormones. And uh, it is obligatory just by the way it is processed in the liver. 30% of it is converted to VLDL. What does that mean to you? If you want to take the shortcut route to having cardiovascular disease, what are you going to do? You're going to eat lots of fructose, right? Because that, that's the fast track to get you there. And uh, once it, once it gets stored in the liver, of course, it can't get out of the liver. So I tried to reduce the two walls of chemical pathways down to something that would be maybe a little more understanding. And so what it did is it made this chart. Now, you'll notice if you eat that pound of fructose, 40% of it comes out as glucose. Now, glucose, your body knows what to do with. It's good. It's good. Every cell in the body can suck it up and use it. And so when it's put back in circulation, you use that. There's no side effects from using the glucose portion. But there's 30% of it that you just learned becomes VLDL, the artery-clogging stuff. And those fats are a little more difficult to deal with. Uh, they cause insulin resistance. It causes insulin resistance. There's still 30% left over. What happens to that remaining 30%? Well, some of it becomes 
turned into skeletal muscle fat, some, which is these big muscles, it's actually stored inside the muscle tissue itself, not in fat cells, it's inside the muscle cells. Some of it is stored as liver fat, some of it is stored as triglycerides, which are free-floating fats in the blood, and some of it uh, causes elevated insulin levels, which is hyperinsulinemia. If your insulin levels get too high, you've learned there's problems from that because that happens with all people with type 2 diabetes as you become insulin resistant. Insulin levels go up. Well, one of the things that causes that is eating fructose causes those elevated insulin levels. And it also, as it's metabolized, as fructose is metabolized, some of it gets converted into uric acid. Any, anybody know any disorders that are caused because of, yeah, gout. Yeah, gout. That's almost like a voice of experience here. Very painful disorder. You know, your joints, like your big toe or whatever, will, will swell. And uh, you, you have this, you, people get where they can't even walk with gout. It's so bad. But as the gout is metabolized, it leads to blood vessel diseases. And you'll have high blood pressure that comes because of that. Uh, men can experience erectile dysfunctions. All kinds of things uh, happen here. You have a JNK1 cycle in this chemical thing. Now, that's not on the test. But what I want you to know is it causes the formation of free radicals, which are dangerous molecules that are missing an electron. And those free radicals go out, and they are actually destroying cellular tissues and organs and things like that. They're causing the complications that are associated with diabetes, and it results in inflammation. And you can't really see inflammation. You can't really put your finger on it. But it's like, it's like you know, when you cut the finger, tomorrow it's swollen, it's red, it's, it's hot to the touch. Uh, etc. That's inflammation and it can happen all over the body at low levels and most people are not even aware that it's happening but it's one of the big things that drives cardiovascular disease and uh, uh, the complications of diabetes. Now what I want you to understand is from here down all of this 60 percent of fructose is going to result in increased insulin resistance. This is the bad boy. When you talk about, I've got to watch my carbs, it's not the potatoes, guy. The potatoes are full of glucose. What you've got to watch is you've got to watch the fructose. And where do we get fructose from? Fruit. Does that mean we can't eat fruit? We are the only species on planet Earth that takes our food and separates the components. We put the protein in a can so we can mix it with our smoothies. We put the sugars over here so we can put that in the cookies. We take the, uh, um, the fiber and we throw it away and feed it to the cattle. We pull other components of it out. We separate our food. We take the fat and we put it in the bottle so we can add it to the cakes. So we separate all our food components and then we start taking a little bit of this and a little bit of that and we go into the kitchen and we make things that it's delicacies and it looks so good. And you say, here, see what I made? Would you like some? And oh, mm, that tastes so good. Does it taste good? Yes, let's not lie. Yes, these things that we make, they taste good. But are they good 
for you. You know, when God created the foods, he created them in a special way. Okay, let's go to the apple. You have fruit. Let's take a lowly apple. One glass of apple juice contains the calories of six to eight apples. How many of you will sit down and eat eight apples in one setting? No one raised their hand. No. Okay? So, what, but, but here's the thing. There is no fiber in the apple juice. Now, you know, Dr. Robert Lustig is a pediatric endocrinologist who's done a lot of work with fructose. He's in Southern, uh, Southern California, University of California. And he says, when God packages a toxin in your food supply, he always packages it with the antidote. Now, fructose is a toxin. And when it's in our food supply, if God packaged it, it's with the antidote. What is the antidote? Fiber, absolutely right. Fiber goes to the liver. I mean, it goes actually to the, 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 the large bowel. And once it's in the large bowel, it encounters bacteria. The bacteria break it down, and they break it down. And one of the things they make is butyrate, which is a short-chain fatty acid. And this butyrate goes back, and it lays hold on uh, uh, the triglycerides and uh, other fats. And it re- takes them to the liver, where they can, be, uh, they, they can be dealt with and excreted properly and metabolized properly. It just undoes all of the things that... Um, the fructose did. So when you eat them in balance, you have no problem. So I have this uh, glass of apple juice, six, juice of six to eight apples, that's going to make your diabetes worse. But if you eat the whole apple, you're going to thrive. So think about your foods. Have you been separating parts of your foods? Oh, could be a problem here. And uh, so I want to move on to the next slide. What about peeling apples? Can, well, let's, let's, let's talk about that. It, you know, people, people we are bio-individuals, okay? And some of us have gotten to the place in our lifespan that we don't have teeth where we can chew the peel of the apple. So what are you going to do? It just so happens that a, a great deal of the nutrition of the apple lies immediately underneath the apple skin. So if you want the maximum nutrition from your apple, eat the apple. But if you're to the place where you can't eat the apple peel, then do the best you can do. Oh, it's just for the spray, getting rid of the spray. Well, what's wrong with an organic apple? Uh, I mean, you know... uh, you know, if, if, if you're concerned about the spray, try, try to get your food that's prepared in such a way that they don't add the sprays. There are the dirty dozen. Yes. Okay, so since we're on this, uh, dirty dozen and the clean 15. Uh, this is not in your handout, so you may want to write it down and look it up when you get home. Just go to Google. Google knows everything. You know that? Okay, so go to Google and just put in the dirty dozen. It's a list of the most uh, pesticide-contaminated foods, okay? And uh, you, you, you can, it's like strawberries is on the list of the dirty dozen, okay? One of the most contaminated pe- uh, pesticide foods out there. So if you can get your strawberries 
organic, then it doesn't have the exposure to that pesticide level. So, you know, then that, that might be worth something spending your money on. But uh, organic foods are more expensive than regular foods. And so what happens if, well, let's take the Clean 15. It's the 15 safest foods out there. They have the least amount of pesticide residues on them. And so you look at the Clean 15, I usually bananas or something, it's something like that that would be on there. If, yeah, if, if you're removing the peel, oftentimes you get rid of a lot of the pesticide residues as well. So would I, would I go into the store and buy an organic banana? Why waste my money? You know, why waste my money on the Clean 15? So I'm going to buy the Clean 15 freely off the shelves. And then if, I have, if, if I'm really concerned about it, then on the, uh, on the org organic stuff, the Dirty Dozen is what I would um, try to buy organically. Okay? And so that'll help, that'll help on your food budget. Gives you a bigger bang for the buck. So, yes, sir? Is there a way to take the pesticides off before you eat them? Now, actually, what you're doing there is you're getting into an area that I cannot speak authoritatively on because I simply haven't done the deep delve into, into the science of, uh, of that. And uh, I, I, I probably ought to leave it there, you know, just so I'm, so I'm right. <laughs> Real quickly, though, the Dirty Dozen includes strawberries, spinach, kale, nectarines, apples. So it is a good thing to peel them if you can't get the organic. Grapes, peaches, cherries, pears, tomatoes. And someone said Roma tomatoes or tomatoes that are grown in a hothouse. You know, you can get them now if they're grown in the hothouse. They're not sprayed like the ones that are out in the field celery, and potatoes. The other day I saw someone buying organic avocados and I felt sorry for them because avocado is the very first one on the clean 15. You know, you're definitely peeling an avocado. So, but for those of you, if you don't have access to, you know, a smartphone or the internet, come talk to me and I'll give it to you. Yes, sir. How do you spray, spray a potato and it's in the ground? Well, you spray, the, you spray the foliage, but the foliage is like a sponge. It gets in the plant, and the plant carries it down into the ground. Yes, it does, it does get uh, the, plant, the plant tissues. You know, it's just like a human tissue. If they, if they sprayed pesticide on you, how are you going to feel in 30 minutes? Hopefully you would wash it off immediately. But if you leave it on your skin, you're going to absorb it. You know, we give people a lot of medications, blood pressure medications, pain medications, things like that, right through the skin. Go, go to, you know, scopolamine patch, you know, we do that to keep nausea down, things like that. So, uh, you live in the apple orchards. Each season, they spray the trees 53 times. We know, because if you're driving by, you, your windshield, you have to close the windows and everything. Wow. 
Okay, so she lives in an apple orchard. Did you hear what she said? Lives in an apple orchard and they spray the trees 53 times during a season. That's incredible. So, two people over there. Okay, back in the back. Yes, ma'am. Well, I can't, I can't speak to that. I just, I just don't know. So, uh, you know, she's, she's making the, um, the observation that she understands that the, some of the pesticides they use on some of the bananas are, have been implicated in the formation of cleft palate in children. So she buys organics to keep them from uh, uh, contaminating her environment. Uh, I don't know anything about that. Back in the back here. Yes, ma'am. Does that mean sweet potatoes? Was that on the, I don't think that was on the clean 15 list. I don't think it was on the dirty dozen list. So it's somewhere in the middle. She's asking about sweet potatoes. All right. uh, yes, ma'am. Yes. Okay, I'm going to get to that in just a moment here. I first want to uh, delve into resistant starch right down here. I told you I'd come back to this. There is a form of starch that is called resistant starch. As the starch molecules get longer uh, and longer, then we get to where our enzymes can't break the starch molecules down. And right between, between resistant starch and fiber, I mean between starch and fiber is a family of starches that we call resistant starch. And if you have resistant starches in your food, People with diabetes can use these to very good advantage if they know what to do. Now take for instance a potato. Most of you have been told if you have diabetes that you can't eat, have, have potatoes. The potatoes are, are full of starches that are going to turn into nothing but plain old glucose. So, um, but you take that potato, scrub it up, and you bake your potatoes in the oven. When they come out, they are just perfect. You know, you press them on the ends and they pop open. And it's just like they're saying, fill me up. And they're so good and they're light and they're fluffy. But that potato is what has happened during the process of baking. The heat from the baking is like a couple on a hot summer night. You know these? How about, a, how about a couple in a hot seminar? <laughs> okay, yeah, in a hot seminar. Well, what happens? What happens is, you know, you're laying in bed together and, and mama grabs the cover and throws it back and says, Whoa, I'm so hot! Move over! And that bond between the two has been broken. Okay? That's what the heat of the oven does to the potato, the starches in the potato. So now the long chains in the potato have become short chains of starches. And enzymes come along and attach themselves to both ends of the starch molecule and they start breaking off sugar molecules. And so it happens very rapidly. So that's why when you eat the potatoes, right away your blood sugar begins to spike. 
and that potato is going to spike your blood sugar significantly. But resistant starch, again, is a lot like people. And you know how some of the times, you know, blackberry winter, it's just cold outside. It, blackberries are blooming and spring is coming, but it's just cold and you get into bed. You've already turned the heat off in the house and it's just like, honey, slide over. I'm cold. Well, this same thing will happen with your potato. You put the potatoes that are left over in the refrigerator and it's like they reconnect the bonds between the two molecules and they form a form of starch that is even more resistant than the original resistant starch that was in the potato. Now, you come back to the, uh, the refrigerator 24 to 48 hours later and you get that potato out and you make a potato salad. When you eat the potato salad, it will not spike your sugar like it spiked your sugar two days ago, even though you eat an equal weight of potato. You will only get about 47% of the calories out of that potato when you eat it after it's been chilled again. Well, some people say, well, what happens if I make cottage fried potatoes? Well, you've changed the nature of the resistant starch. Now, when you heat it back up, it's still not going to break enough bonds to make that a significant increase and it still won't spike your sugar like it did before. What if you steam them? What if you steam the potatoes? If you steam the potatoes, the steaming breaks apart the, you know, it's the heat that actually breaks apart the resistant starch molecules. You take it, put it in the refrigerator. When you pull, when you, if I've baked a potato or if I've steamed a potato and I pull it out of the refrigerator 48 hours later, is it still light and fluffy? No. No. It's because the nature of the molecule has changed. The nature of the starch has changed. The resistant starches have reformed in that potato. And when, when, when you heat them up as cottage fried potatoes, it still holds its form. It's because it changed the nature of the starch now. It doesn't fall apart like the fluffy baked potato did the first time. Okay? So anyway, this applies to any food that is high in resistant starch. Now just remember that Google knows everything. So when you go home, you want to know what foods are high in resistant starch. You can get a whole long list of them. Rice, pasta, etc. There's a long list of them. And the same principle will apply. Some like it hot, some like it cold, some like it in the pot nine days old, or well, three days old. You know, leave it there two to three days. But the resistant starches will form and it won't spike your blood sugar the same way it did when it was first cooked and hot. So this is a very good thing to remember. Like if you want to make lasagna for the weekend, make it on Thursday or Friday, put it in the refrigerator, reheat it on Sabbath, and you're not going to get your sugar to spike the same as you would if you served it hot right away. So... And these other foods, there's a pasta salad. It's wonderful. Fix the, cook the pasta a day or two ahead, put it in the refrigerator, get it out and make your salad when you need it. Okay? So that's resistant starch. I'm still not done talking about sugars, though. So since we're talking about carbohydrates, I mean, this just all goes together. A lot of people will ask me about 
other sugars, uh, sweetener alternatives. The healthy and sugars. The sh healthy sugars. Well, when people get a diagnosis of diabetes, oftentimes a dietitian will come in and talk to them. And you have to understand the orientation of the, di uh, of the dietitian. She is concerned, or he, whoever it is, is concerned about controlling the blood sugar. They don't understand a lot of the physiology of what we've talked about today. And so they'll say, well, what you can do is you can use agave syrup in your kitchen as a replacement for sugar because it won't spike your blood sugar. Is that true? Yes, that's true. It will not spike your blood sugar. And the reason it doesn't spike your blood sugar is the predominant sweetener in agave syrup is fructose. Yes, I hear some A's going out again. So fructose. Fructose, uh, agave syrup, contains between 56 and 85% fructose. It depends on the manufacturer. It's made the same way that we take the starch from corn and turn the starch from corn into high fructose corn syrup. Uh, it's made the same way, only the starting plant they use is the agave cactus, and they take the starches in the cactus and they convert that and make it into fr high, high fructose uh, syrup. And uh, they tell people, you can eat this, it won't spike your blood sugar, and it won't. It has to go to the liver, it has to be changed into something else, and that takes time. But it's going to make your diabetes worse. So do we want to do that? I say no. Turbinado sugar. Uh, you remember sucrose is 50% glucose and 50% fructose. And when you, when you get that in your mouth, amylase separ separates it. So by weight, if I were to eat a pound of sugar, white sugar, I, what I have is I have half a pound of fructose and I have half a pound of glucose. Half a pound of the bad stuff, half a pound of the good stuff. But turbinado sugar contains 1% impurities. It is 99% sucrose, so that means it's 49.5% fructose. What about other sweeteners? Brown sugar? Brown sugar naturally contains 95% sucrose, so that's 50-50 now, glucose, fructose, but it contains a natural 1% glucose and 1% fructose, so we take half of this and you get, um, somebody help me with the math, 48 and a half is it? 47 and a half, and then you add 1% to that, and you get 48 and a half percent. Honey is, na is a better sweetener. It has 41% fructose in it. Better yet is pure maple syrup. This is the expensive stuff, not the imitation stuff. The imitation stuff happens to be sweetened with high fructose corn syrup, high fructose corn syrup. So uh, you've got to watch it. And uh, molasses. 27 and a half. So if you're moving down to the bottom of the list, have you, are you improving your health if you're using these as a sugar substitute? And the answer, of course, is yes, you will improve that. What about monk fruit? She's asking, what about monk fruit? Well, I'm, I'm not a monk fruit expert. Monk fruit is a fruit that they extract the sugar from. It's a refined process. And if I'm not mistaken, what they usually do is they put additives in it and it's usually something like sorbitol or erythritol, which are sugar alcohols, and they're not, uh, I, it's considered generally safe food products, but um, I don't endorse them. Uh, I would far rather you'd eat the whole plant-based 
uh, food and just change the type of sweetener altogether that you're selecting for your, uh, for your recipes. And um, With what? Sucrinate. Sucrinate. It's, it's like, it's brown, like the very unprocessed. <coughs> uh, I have not researched sucrinate. 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 Oh, yes, I know about sucrinate. Okay, sucrinate is, uh, it, it is, she's asking, are, are, am I familiar with sucrinate? Yes, absolutely. Uh, the sucanat, what it is, is it is like a slurry that is taken off and dried in the sugar processing. So it contains a lot of the impurities, but the fiber has all been stripped. Most of the nutrients have been stripped out of it. You know, it hasn't gone through the final uh, refinement process. Uh, so it's virtually, it would be close to the 50-50 split of fructose and sucrose. They just haven't finished the refining process. It contains some impurities. Yes, ma'am. What about which one? Stevia. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Oh, Truvia. Yes, Truvia is made from a plant called Stevia, and we're going to get to that in just a moment. And uh, um, anyway, I want to talk for just a moment about um, fats from carbohydrates, because you've heard I've got to watch my carbs. Why? Because the carbs make you fat, right? Well, there were some researchers at... Uh, um, big Ivy League University, and now Steve can't think of the name of it, and it begins with an H. Harvard. Harvard University, thank you. Yeah, why, why I did that, I don't know. I guess I'm, I'm getting some timer's disease, huh? So anyway, what, what, what they did is they looked at where the fat is made in your body from carbohydrates. And so if the fat is made from glucose. What they discovered was that your body actually, if it has extra glucose, it will typically increase your metabolism rate and you will burn off a lot of the extra that you have just eaten. And uh, your normal body size will be maintained. Only a small portion will actually be retained as fat and it's always associated with longevity, and uh, it also it, um, makes your diabetes better. So if you're eating glucose sources, it's going to make your diabetes better. That means if you eat the potato, the potato is going to improve your diabetes. <laughs> After it's been refrigerated? Or does it matter? Uh, as, as far as your longevity goes, uh, it doesn't matter. As far as your blood sugar goes, it does matter. So if he's, if he's still watching his blood sugar real closely, then he, he's going to want to refrigerate it before he eats it. But it's a good food. It is what you put on your potato that makes you fat. Okay, I've got a question over here. Yes, ma'am. We're not talking about french fries. We are talking about Irish potatoes. The white potatoes that they make french fries out of. Okay? And so, uh, if you, I don't reckon, you'll have to come back tomorrow because I'm going to talk about french fries tomorrow. Or actually the fats. We'll, we'll talk about the fats tomorrow. 
but uh, tomorrow morning. I want to mention one thing while we're talking about potatoes still. If you are able to look online at the 2022 Dirty Dozen and Clean 15, potatoes are no longer on the Dirty Dozen. They've fallen off, but peppers have been added. Peppers. So just FYI. Okay, so Karen's been over here doing her research. Now, oh, someone else Yes. Knows. <laughs> uh, I was just not clear on is uh, granulated white sugar or cane sugar, is that half glucose and half glucose? Okay, he's asking is granulated white sugar half glucose and fructose? Yes, it is what we call sucrose. So when we've been talking about sucrose up here, that's another name for granulated white sugar 50% glucose, 50% fructose. Good question. So uh, now, if we eat fructose, if we gain fat from fructose that we have eaten, the majority of the energy that you eat as carbohydrates in the form of fructose will be stored as fat. It will cause a significant weight gain. It is associated with increased insulin resistance. That means it's going to make your diabetes worse and it is only released from the liver by hormones. And somebody was asking, what are these hormones? And here's your answer to it. There are two hormones, and one of them is epinephrine. Another name for epinephrine is adrenaline. So if you want to reverse your diabetes, it's time for us to get out of our chairs and become adrenaline junkies. Take up skydiving, <laughs> drive fast, Get in police chases or something. Do something to get an adrenaline rush. Start doing downhill skiing. Ski the black diamonds. Yes, because it'll reverse your diabetes. Or, or you need to use glucagon. And glucagon is the other hormone that does the same thing. Now, glucagon is only released from the stomach and small intestine when it is empty. But... We live in a postprandial society. So you get up in the morning, first thing you do is you have a cup of coffee, then a few minutes later, you sit down and you eat a quick breakfast, you race off to work, and you pour yourself another cup of coffee there uh, on your desk, and you, you, you sip on that while you are trying to get a little bit of work done, but pretty soon your blood sugar begins dropping because you're running out of that caffeine buzz, so you have to run hit the, the vending machines. You get a mid-morning snack by 11.30 or 12 o'clock you're going to the lunch room to have lunch and at 2 30 in the afternoon they have office party there's cake and ice cream you can't let it go to waste so you have you 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 take some more on board and then by four o'clock in the afternoon your blood sugar is doing a dive again because of what you just ate at 2 30 so you have to hit the vending machines a second time during the day you go home you eat dinner at six o'clock and then at bedtime you eat ice cream before you go to bed when is your stomach ever empty and in our society, it just simply is not because of the way that we live. And that means when you, get, when you eat fructose, your body is going to store it as fat and you're going to wear it the rest of your life. Oh, that's dismal, isn't it? One of the fastest ways that you can correct this problem is by something known as intermittent fasting. Now intermittent fasting, you allow yourself a period of time to eat 
and a period of time when you don't eat. Now, some people like to take a day, a week, and they don't eat anything for the full 24 hours. To me, that's tough. But some people, they, they, they get along well, well with that. And if it works for you, it's good. Do it. Other people will take two or three days in a month, and they'll just do it two or three days at a time. But there's another way that's a lot easier for people with diabetes. First, be sure you talk to your doctor, because he's probably going to want to make adjustments in your medications. And uh, just tell him you would like to do intermittent fasting. And you've, you've heard that has some good benefits for diabetes reversal. And so uh, he'll, he'll make those adjustments for you. And then you get up in the morning, and you eat a good, hearty breakfast. Breakfast is very important for people with, that want to reverse diabetes. And there's a lot of reasons for that, and we'll talk some more about that uh, in a couple days. But anyway, um, then you don't eat anything for five to six hours. No, nothing with flavored. I don't want any flavored water. We don't want sodas, no tea, no lemon water, nothing except pure water for five to six hours. Five to six hours later, you eat a second meal, high fiber meal. And then once you have that food on board, you simply don't eat again until the next morning. You sleep during the period of time when you're most hungry. And, and so, you know, you're not that, much, that uncomfortable. It actually tends to improve your sleep cycles. And so if your sleep cycles are improved, that improves your odds that you're going to reverse your diabetes. And what happens is about 4 o'clock in the morning, your intestine empties out. Your small intestine empties out. Your small intestine empties out. And when that happens, stomach is empty, small intestine is empty, then it releases the glucagon that we were just talking about. I guess I need to back up a slide still. Yeah, the glucagon will, uh, will be released, and it goes to the liver and tells the liver it's time to give up some of the stored energy. And so the liver does. And how is the energy stored in the liver? Yes, as fat and as glucagon. And as you give up the stored energy, what happens to the weight of the liver? It shrinks just a little bit. So when you do this on a repeated basis, you're doing intermittent fasting every day, every day, just about. Then you're defatting the liver, defatting the liver, defatting the liver. This is the shortcut route to being able to reverse your diabetes. How long do you do it? Make it a lifestyle. Do it until your, your, your diabetes is reversed. And then just keep it up to keep yourself there. And uh, it, yeah, this, when, you, when, you, when you intermittent fast, it drives diabetes in reverse. Okay? So there's something that's known as the dawn phenomenon. How many of you know what dawn phenomenon is? Yeah, a few people, okay. Um, with dawn phenomenon, you might check your blood sugar at night before you go to bed, and it's uh, maybe 110 or something like that, not too shabby. And uh, you wake up the next morning and get out of bed, and the first thing you do is you check your blood sugar again, because that's what your doctor told you to do, and this time it's 347. And you haven't had a bite to eat all night long. And you say, what's going on here? I haven't had anything to eat, but my blood sugar is going up. Well, what happened during the night, your small intestine got empty. 
because you didn't eat the night before. And so when it got empty, it sent out the glucagon signal to the liver. The liver released glucose, but you're insulin resistant. Because you're insulin resistant, you can't move the sugars into the cell because the cells are resistant against the work that insulin's trying to do. And so your blood sugar rises. Now the typical way that we manage that your doctor will say, well, I want you to eat a snack at bedtime every night. Well, that will control your blood sugar because it keeps something in your intestine. The problem is it doesn't allow anything to come out of the liver. Now, when you're looking at this problem from a diabetes reversal perspective, what we want to happen is we want the liver to give up some glucose every night so we can get over the diabetes. That means your blood sugar is going to go up. So how do we handle that? Well, when you get up the next morning, you'll remember that we learned earlier this morning, anytime you exercise, the doors to the cell open up and admit 14 times the amount of glucose into the cell for the given amount of insulin. So what happens if you go on a short walk? Yeah, you can go on a walk for 30 minutes and you come home, recheck that blood sugar. I guarantee you it won't be 347. You'll see something that's much lower. If it's still elevated, then go ahead and inject your insulin according to your sliding scale. And, uh, but what has happened? Because you went and did a little exercise to bring your sugar back down, you've allowed lifestyle to manage the issue. Your insulin levels are going to be lower. It makes weight loss possible. And you're in, you've also defatted the liver a little bit. You're driving the diabetes in reverse. And this can happen rather rapidly and you know if a person is diligent about intermittent fasting they're going to see blood sugars return to normal typically within about a month to six weeks and that's amazing you know these people that have had sugars running three and four hundred in the morning so often start waking up and 86 92 etc uh, somebody just telling me they there there's they just checked this morning, I think it was, 79. Yes, ma'am. So um, if you wake up and you're elevated, you exercise before you eat? No, no, you exercise before you inject your insulin. You, you exercise, then recheck. Yeah, yeah, do it before you eat. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, but, but the first thing I would do is I would exercise for about 30 minutes, and then I would come back and I would... Uh, See if I still needed the insulin, and uh, you'll need much less. The, the, you see, high insulin, whether you're injecting it or uh, whether you're, you're insulin resistant, a high insulin level is still a food storage hormone. It's still going to... There, there's a delicate balance that's created here, and we need to be on the right side of that delicate balance. You might have diabetes and you might not be injecting insulin. You're, you're absolutely right. And so if, you, you know, if you're not having to inject insulin, then uh, you know, go ahead and do your exercise to bring the blood sugar back down. But then eat your wholesome high fiber foods to help drive it in reverse. And as you're eating the high fiber foods, I gotta tell you about Tommy. Um, Tommy was a gentleman, he came to our class 
he had had diabetes for about two years, and uh, he, he, he was sort of a friend of mine. Um, he worked at a building supply place, and he oftentimes delivered the building supplies that I would order, and we had, we had uh, struck up this little friendship that basically revolved around building materials. And uh, one day, Tommy was asking me what I was doing now, and I told him we, we had uh, begun teaching uh, a reversing diabetes course, and we're, we're holding that in multiple places around the country. And he said, well, if you ever come to town, let me know. I, I, I've just been diagnosed with diabetes a couple years now. And uh, he said, I'd like to come. So I let him know, and he did come, uh, he and his, he, his uh, companion. And um, he said, man, i got to have my sugars. I said, listen, Tommy, we, we, we explained about the fructose and what the problems were associated with that. And I said, find something else. Well, what can I have? And I said, well, what's wrong with fruit? And he said, well, okay. So he went home and he worked diligently. I mean, he did his birth training and he did uh, uh, walking after meals and he was just gung-ho about doing everything that I, I told him to do. And uh, he, we started losing quite a bit of weight. His energy levels went up. I thought, he is really going to be my star pupil. Well, we had a little grant at the time that was allowing us to check people's A1C. And I checked his A1C. It was really pretty good. He was under good control. It was 6.1. And uh, so he was actually in the pre-diabetes range, but it was his diabetes medicines that were holding him down in that range, of course. So um, anyway... Three months later, we had a follow-up meeting, and he came back in, and I checked his A1C, and it was 6.1, and it wasn't supposed to be. He had lost 50 pounds in three months, guys. He, certainly, with a 50-pound weight loss, he would have decreased his liver uh, his, his liver fat. And it just didn't make any sense to my mind. I said, what is going on? Have I given this man some bad advice? Why isn't his A1C coming down? I mean, I'm just really giving myself a beating over his A1C. And so I, I, I sat down with him and said, Tommy, tell me about what you're doing. And he said, man, I told you I had to have my sweets and you told me I could have fruit. I said, well, what are you eating? He said, well, I'm eating watermelon and I'm eating grapes. Sometimes, after he finished his meal, he would sit down and polish off a whole watermelon. <laughs> a whole watermelon. Those of you that have diabetes know that watermelon has a high glycemic index. And here this man is eating a whole watermelon, or he's eating grapes with abandon. And I'm thinking, did I give him bad advice? Isn't fruit the better option? It, it contains the fiber, which is the antidote for the fructose, but he's eating so much of it. And as I mentally reviewed all of these things that I know about science, it's just like he's walking down the right road. He has lost 50 pounds. He's got to be decreasing his pancreatic and liver fat. He has to be going in the right direction. So I made the option not to discourage him, not to change the course, just let him hold with it. His family noticed that he was losing weight, and they said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> You've got to go to the class. 
Well, we were holding a class in the adjoining town. And so when on opening night, the door opens, in walks Tommy with about six or eight of his family members in tow so they could learn what was happening to him. And I asked him, I said, Tommy, would you tell, I'll stand up and tell people what's going on with you. He said, man, I don't like to speak up front. But then he rose to the occasion and he said, guys, let me tell you. And he, he, he told them what he had done. He's lost, he had lost, by that time, 75 pounds. Now, I never did get a retest of Tommy's A1C, but his doctor did. He didn't remember what his A1C was, but his doctor took him off of all medications. Is that an indication of what his A1C was doing? Yes, yes that is. Took him off of all the medications, and it's been about five years now. And Tommy never has to check his blood sugar. He's kept that weight off now for all of these years. Diabetes hasn't come back. He still eats fruit after his meal because he loves to finish his meal with his sweets. And uh, anyway, so I'm going to talk very briefly about sugar substitutes. All of these sugar substitutes are going to increase insulin resistance. They're going to make your diabetes worse. They're going to cause you to have an increased appetite. Therefore, you're going to eat more, all of them except one, and that one is called stevia. So stevia is a plant extract, and it's known as Truvia for the lady back here that asked. Uh, so uh, it, it is okay, but You'll notice that stevia is packaged multiple ways. Oftentimes it's packaged with uh, erythritol or sorbitol or sugar alcohols or whatever else. I really only recommend stevia. The form that I use is called new stevia. You want to get a non-bitter formula or you want deveined stevia. The veins in the leaves have a bitter aftertaste. And if you've ever had stevia and it gave you that nasty aftertaste, it's like, I don't want to go back. But let me, let me tell you, not all stevia preparations are the same. The one I use is called New Stevia. We order it online, buy it a pound at a time, and it usually will last us for about two years, one pound of sugar substitute. It's 60, uh, 600 times sweeter than sugar. So one teaspoon, one teaspoon of stevia, of, of the New Stevia, and a cup of applesauce would equal a cup of sugar in recipes. Well, we've got to call, call this to an end. It's been fun to talk to you about carbohydrate chemistry. I hope you understood. And so let's just stand together. We'll have a prayer, and, uh, and uh, we'll see you back in the morning at 9.15. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you've given us knowledge, wisdom, and thank you also for understanding. Be with each person as we go our separate ways. Lord, we're here for camp meeting. And I pray that you will bless them with increased health and also bless them with a spiritual blessing and a closer walk with Jesus Christ. In his name I pray. Amen. Amen.